Uh, my name is Van Barnhill, and I am the men's ministry and local impact pastor here at East Cooper Baptist Church. Last summer, I had the opportunity to preach, and when I did, I, I, I spoke on loving the Lord specifically during times of difficulty or distress, and in sort of a continuing fashion, um, I want to speak on a related idea, loving your neighbor or loving one another, especially um, specifically during times of difficulty or distress. My text last year was Psalm 13, where David was experiencing a sense of distance and uh, distress from God. And he had a desire to once again trust and rejoice in the Lord's goodness to him. And this morning we'll be at the other end of the Bible in 1 John 4, where the apostle is writing encouragement and instructions to the early church. And both of these passages are interesting in light of the great commandment where we are to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And they speak towards our circumstances and our emotions and they suggest that while the great commandment is fairly straightforward and easy to understand, it is actually much more difficult to live out and practice. So as we continue this, uh, this kind of sort of very drawn out series, um, let's pray. Uh, b before we do, um, I, I do want to make note of something. Um, when, I, when I last preached to this congregation, I was 31, married, uh, ministering to high school students. And since then, uh, my wife and I were thrilled to discover that we would become parents. And my job here at the church has changed. And my mother has passed away. And I am now a year older and like many of y'all, for the first time ever, I've experienced my first pandemic, and I've spent the last few months under quarantine. And just over the last few weeks, I have uh, experienced and gone through the highs and lows of human emotion, having been frustrated and heartbroken at the sin of racism that still plagues our nation, to being overwhelmed with joy at the birth of our little girl, Mary Bennett. And I say all this in part because I want you all to be informed about me as, as the person who's preaching here today while Buster is away, um, but also and, and really primarily so we can all remember that none of us come into worship or open our Bible as blank slates, void of context, right? We, we enter into fellowship feeling cheerful or frustrated or despondent or something else all together, and we enter into worship bearing burdens and holding on to some hope for the future. C.S. Lewis notes that this experience is not unique to Sunday morning, but to every day. He believes that it comes the very moment we wake up every morning. All of your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply of, of shoving them all back and listening to that other quieter voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all the day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings and coming in out of the wind. Although we enter into worship with a set of issues unique to the individual, we also enter in unity as broken people of an, in need of, of the God who created the heavens and the earth to work intimately in our lives. So it's our opportunity as the body of Christ this day and all the other days to come in out of the wind. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the, the opportunity that we have to worship, um, whether in, in some modified fashion here or 
at home with family and friends, um, or even just by ourselves through a live stream. And we, we pray that as we look at your word, that you would help us to be more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Towards the, the end of his first letter to the early church, the Apostle John writes, beginning in chapter 4, verse 19, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The first half of this chapter walks through a a series of statements, mostly listing the ways for readers to know whether or not they have fellowship with God the one who first loved us. In chapter five, verse 13, the author explains his reason for writing these things. It's that those who believe in the name of the son of God may know that they have eternal life. His words are meant to encourage, but also to educate. They provide a a litmus test for the believer. Are we followers of God? Do we believe in this one who sent his son into the world? If so, we will love God. And if we love God, we will love others. And our ability to love is predicated on the fact that God first loved us. He is a God who initiates towards us and invites us into relationship with him. I'm regularly in all the fact that um, the God who created it uh, and, and is the sustainer of everyone and everything who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his power, perfection, goodness, glory, wisdom, justice, and truth, as the New City Catechism says, who demonstrates his love towards us and that while, while we were still sinners. That's, that's the same God. God is profound in who he is, but he is so very personal in how he deals with us. He's like the good father who runs out to the reckless son who returns home with his head down in shame. And he is the good father who entreats the older son who stays home, who thinks he deserved more for being there. He's the same God. The Lord deals with us graciously and lovingly because he is in and of himself gracious and loving. We do not deserve his love, but now that he has set his affections upon us, we in turn, by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, are made able to love others as well. So as verse 20 says, if we, if we say we love God but main, maintain hate for a person or a people, something is amiss. John, in fact, uses much stronger language here, right? He says that the person who loves, who speaks of loving God while hating his brother is a liar. Throughout this entire letter, we can see this, this technique of contrast being used, love and, and hate and, and, and light and darkness, Light is opposed to darkness, love is the opposite of hate. In chapter two, we see that whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still actually in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, he is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So those who love the Lord walk in the light and those who love the Lord also love their brother. Now, perhaps it goes without saying, or maybe perhaps it just bears repeating, but at any point during our reading of 1 John, if we we wonder to ourselves, who is my brother? Jesus provides a helpful scope for us in Luke 10 after a lawyer opts to put him to the test. Um, Having answered well the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 29, the man seeking to justify himself 
he asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? And the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus then tells, it reveals to the man and to us looking in on the exchange that everyone is our neighbor. That every single man and woman and child is made in the image of God and is worthy of love and dignity and respect. So as we move back to 1 John, we have to deal with the starkness of verse 20. If, if someone is a follower of Christ, if they say they love God, they must also love other people. It's not optional or circumstantial, but it is a non-negotiable characteristic of a Christian. The second half of verse 20 reiterates it another way. How can we love a God that we have not seen when we don't love our brother that we have seen? How will we love God when we don't love those right in front of us? If we as Christians, as it says in 1 Peter 1, can, can we, if we can proclaim that although we do not see God now, we believe in him and, and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, then we must also demonstrate love for other people. It's a commandment that Christ's followers have been explicitly given, but it's also um, a display of understanding God's initiating love towards us. Again, we, we love because he first loved us. So a love of God necessitates that we love other people. And this is true when John wrote this letter to the early church, and it's especially true for us now. Similarly, um, I think that the practice of actually loving other people has always been a very difficult proposal for the original recipients of 1 John and for us now and for every other human being ever. The, uh, the prospect of, of loving somebody else does not always come naturally. Speaking for myself, it doesn't necessarily feel like a, a reflex. And the reason this is the case that is still the case is that um, despite the fact that we are followers of Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, we still deal with the effects of sin. We still at times operate out of, out of selfishness or pride. And this was true for Jesus' disciples and it was true for the early church and it was true for every saint that we've ever quoted and it's true for us today. So although I think that there is a, a certain camaraderie in this, that we are all broken people who are only capable of loving others when we understand God's love towards us, we should not be resigned to the fact that we will always struggle to, one, uh, to love one another rightly. And we should not make attempts to, to grow in grace as we consider how to relate to one another well. We together beholding the glory of the Lord should long to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We should make strides in demonstrating the love of Christ towards others that um, we interact with. So as we consider this, uh, this very biblical and this very human question of, of how to love one another well, I believe that it's, help, uh, that it's helpful to do so in light of our current context. We share the early church's concern that lovers of God must also be lovers of people, but the way that we interact with one another today is so incredibly different, right? Even over the past few months, our, our personal interactions have been drastically altered. And we, at least, at least I do, I feel these deficiencies. Like many other uh, organi organizations and businesses, we've spent the past couple months here at the church uh, doing most of our staff and our pastors meetings on, on Zoom or FaceTime. And it's, it's convenient uh, on one hand. I'm thankful for the technology that we have that makes something like that possible. But at the same time, it's just not quite the same, is it? 
I know community groups have done it, men's small groups have done it, women's Bible studies have done it, but it's not quite the same as being in person. Um, and at our staff meetings, people, people freeze up all the time. And the rest of us are just there kind of left wondering, what were they gonna say next, right? We usually have a lot of very funny people on staff, but humor and nuance gets lost on a video chat. We tried to sing happy birthday to a staff member one time. Half the people were singing at different speeds and the other half were on mute. It was a disaster, right? As I mentioned earlier, my wife and I just welcomed uh, the addition of a beautiful baby girl a few weeks ago. And because of regulations, we weren't allowed to have any visitors in the hospital. So we were introducing our daughter to her family over FaceTime. Again, I'm, I'm thankful for this technology that makes something like that possible, but it is not as good as the real thing, right? We had grandparents and we had aunts and uncles and we had um, people that wanted to pick up and hold and um, hug our, our little girl and not just look at her on a screen. These past few months of, of Zoom meetings and social distancing have compounded for us an already very present reality that, that screens come up short when it comes to our relationships with one another. They give us a false sense of connection that, that, that never, ever lives up to the promise. A few years ago, uh, Tony Reinke wrote a wonderful book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And he talks about the social reversal caused by uh, something like the smartphone. He says, it gives us the desire to be alone in public, but never alone in private. We can be shielded in public and surrounded in isolation, meaning that we can escape the awkwardness of human interaction on the street and the boredom of solitude in our homes, or so we think. Conversations and interactions and even relationships with other people become a subscriber-based, able to be chosen or not, chable, uh, not chosen at a swipe. And I say this as someone who is, who is rarely without their phone and, and kind of treats it as an appendage because I, like some of myself, uh, because I, like, like some of you, I imagine, um, consider my, happy, my happiness and my comfort as paramount. I pull up my phone when I'm waiting in line at the store or if I have a few minutes in between meetings. It's like a... It's like a digital security blanket, right? right? It gives us a little bit of comfort, a little bit of distraction, a little bit of insulation. And as a result, I'm not seeing other people. I'm not thinking about other people, um, whether I'm by myself or I'm out in public. I'm, I'm really considering only myself and I'm forcing isolation upon myself. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to uh, the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia, and I've actually been able to go twice, and in both instances, a different, a different friend called me up the night before, kind of late the night before, and asked me, do you want to go to the Masters tomorrow? Both times, I said, tell me where and when I need to be. Um, I kind of have a rule that if somebody ever asks you to go to a sporting event that is on the Mount Rushmore of sporting events, something like the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals or the Masters or curling at the Winter Olympics, that you automatically say yes, and then you just figure out the logistics later. And I knew there'd be a lot of wonderful things about Augusta National, but something I did not realize beforehand that um, cell phones and cameras were prohibited. You weren't allowed to bring them in. So... Every day, everyone for the entire day um, that I was with was walking around without their phones, without cameras. And I have to admit that, that, I, that I loved it. It was, it was freeing. I felt much more present and as a result, much less distracted. And I found myself having more meaningful conversations with my friend that I was there with and even people I didn't know, right? Other people, we were, we were interacting at, at a higher degree. Because my digital security blanket was gone, my eyes felt a little bit more open and I 
considered myself a little bit less and I felt a little less isolated. Something that I think that is worth noting is that it's not just Christians like Tony Reinke or myself here this morning that are talking about the effects of technology on us as humans. Um, Notice is being taken in almost every single industry imaginable by Christian and non-Christian alike. And the common consensus is that, that, life, that life lived through screens is, is fundamentally changing us and it's not for the better. A psychology professor, uh, Gene Twenge, has written articles titled, um, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And she's probably most famous for a book called iGen. iGen is Gen Z, 1995 to 2012. And the subtitle of iGen is, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood, and What That Means for the Rest of Us. Computer science professors like Cal Newport, who I really enjoy, who has a wonderful podcast, he's written a book on the subject of digital minimalism, which is like a Marie Kondo-esque version of tidying up your screen time in order to live a more focused and productive life. And by the way, Marie Kondo sparks joy for me. I'm not knocking it. I think, it's, I think there's helpful principles there. But everyone is talking about this all over the place. Really smart people are expressing really serious concerns for the way that screens have changed the way that we live and interact with other people. And it's strange, right, that if we haven't already gotten there, we are very close to reaching a point where the primary way that we experience other people is not through face-to-face interaction, but through a screen. From food orders to dating to doctor's visits, people are virtually separated. And I think, to a certain extent, they're being gradually dehumanized. It's not a person on the other side of the screen, but something that serves as a means to an end. A more... Uh, extreme example of this is something like pornography, which treats people, especially women, like objects to be used as opposed to the image bearers that they are. And maybe a more mild example is the way that people interact with one another on social media. And I have to say that, that I'm, I'm regularly appalled by the way that people comment on Facebook posts and Twitter threads. Words are used carelessly and cruelly and it's, it's being done by those inside and outside of the church, if, if we're honest. Whether you know it or not, if you are a young person on, um, on Instagram posing for likes, or you are a not-so-young person on Facebook uh, ranting against political others, you are participating in and or being changed by this dehumanization of others. Again, what's happening here is that people are being reduced to objects or opponents instead of the image bearers that they are. These sort of exchanges foster loneliness and the ubiquitous nature of screens. Um, it, it leads to a sort of social isolation that's going to outlast any pandemic. So as we consider the text this morning, I wanna give two Main points of encouragement as we seek to grow in Christ-likeness and love others well, especially in our current age where loneliness and screen time abound. The first is to remember and to reflect, particularly to remember the nature of God's love towards us, how it is unprompted and undeserved and occurs as a result of God's initiating love towards us, his affections towards us. First John 4, 9 and 10 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that I have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God showed his love to us through Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins and who we now live life by and through. 
God first loved us, notably at a time where we were not very lovable. It's the beauty of the gospel. As a result of God's love, we, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are made able to love others as well. So we first remember and reflect on the nature of God's love towards us. And we also consider that our ability to love is only made possible through the work of Christ on the cross. Um, Earlier, I I mentioned uh, Tony Reinke, who is a wonderful writer and theologian and has uh, written a lot um, in the area of Christianity and technology. And a few years ago, Danny Beach and I actually got to have lunch lunch with him at an event that we were only um, present at because we were tagging along with Buster. Um, True story, I was at one of those events a few years ago and there was maybe 50 or 75 people there. And we were told to break up into groups of three or four and to introduce ourselves and to answer some discussion questions. And there was three other people in my group and me. The three other people were John Piper, Tim Keller, and Kevin DeYoung, and then me. One of us was not the same, Um, but I smiled and I had a really good time listening to them for uh, their answers. So Tony Tony Reinke, who has been uh, a wonderful contributor um, to the church, he uh, wrote a follow-up book of sorts to 12 Ways um, called Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And this book is meant to answer the question, how do we thrive in an age of spectacle? In this ecosystem of digital pictures and fabricated sites and viral moments that compete for our attention. And by spectacle, he means a moment of time in which the the collective gaze is fixed on some specific image or event. A spectacle is something that captures human attention, an instant where our eyes and our brains focus and fixate on something projected at us. And very rightly in this book, he says that the Christian's battle in the media age can only be won by the expulsive power of a superior spectacle. Christ is our safety and our guide in the competing Um, age of spectacles and the age of social media. He's our only hope in life and death in the age to come and in this media age. Christ on the cross must always first and foremost be the foundation on which we stand, the lens through which we see the world and the spectacle that calls for our attention more than any spectacle that the world might offer up. God's initiating love towards us must be at, at the core of our identity and the main motivation for how we think and speak and live. The second point of encouragement um, and and application, um, and perhaps maybe the much more difficult one to do is to repent and to be reconciled, particularly with those that we do not reflexively feel love towards. I say reflexively because we are called and commanded to love one another in this gracious way that God first loved us, but loving others can be difficult. We know ourselves and we know that when push comes to shove, it's not the easiest thing in the world. It can be difficult for for family members and friends and it can be especially difficult when the person that we are to love is unlike or unfamiliar or even unsettling to us. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in, let us not love in word or talk, but in in deed and truth. We are to live sacrificially, laying down our lives for one another. 
When we recognize those in need, we are not supposed to respond with a a closed off heart, but with the love of Christ. So what keeps us from loving in deed and in truth? The obvious answer is sin, but more specifically, it is a form of pride and selfishness that says, I am better or I should come first. I think and, and feel these things often when I'm stuck in traffic or I'm forced to wait in a line or when somebody says something that I disagree with, my natural inclination is to roll my eyes and to um, shake my head and to begin to think of all the reasons that I'm right and they're wrong. And that's not laying down your life, that's not dying to self, that's not demonstrating an awareness of God's initiating love. And this feels uh, difficult to say because I think it's so actually uh, difficult to actually do. I can understand how I could respond uh, to, uh, to a God who loves me first, but then I read something like 1 John 4, 21 that so clearly states, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And I have to think, all of them? All the time? Every person? And the answer is a resounding yes. Every time. If you, like me, don't always feel this way about a person or a group of people, you should repent and you should seek reconciliation with them. Understand that this isn't something we are left to figure out on our own or to do out of sheer determination. It's made possible by an understanding of God's love towards us and the enabling, the indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to love like Jesus The gospel communicates the good news of how Jesus' death gives us life. And then it also provides a blueprint for how we are to live in this world and to live with other people. There are are vertical and horizontal ramifications to it. Charlie Dates, who is um, one of my favorite preachers, whose church is a a block south of um, where the Chicago White Sox play, he said in a recent sermon that, This theology that we have sold people in America that tells them only how to get to heaven but does not show them how to live with their brother and their sister on earth is inadequate and thoroughly unbiblical. He's right. What we see here in 1 John 4 and elsewhere in the scriptures is that how we live matters, especially how we live with other people. It is of theological importance. So as chosen ones by God, as followers of Christ, we are to put on, as it says in Colossians 3, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, we're to forgive them just as Christ has forgiven us. And above all, as Christ followers, we are to put on love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. It is the love of God which unifies us and the love of God in which we um, must be, it must be the means and the motivation for, for which we operate in this world. I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that the first half of 2020 has been rather bizarre and at times frustrating. Um, so much has happened in the last six months that it feels really like a long time ago, but at one point a regular segment in the news cycle was whether or not we would have World War III with North Korea. Remember that? A short while later, I was, I, was really, um, I was really heartbroken to learn of the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter in a helicopter crash. And not very long after that, we entered into an unprecedented pandemic that shut down the world. And for entertainment, some of us turned to um, the exotic world of cat ownership. 
And others of us spent hours looking at a documentary remembering why Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. And then there was brief talk of murder hornets that thankfully went away. But then a short while later, um, Ahmad Arbery was gunned down in Georgia and many of us thought, not again. And not long after that, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And again, many of us wondered, why, 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 oh Lord, does this keep happening? And then protests and riots swept across the country. And as Buster mentioned over the last couple of weeks, that it has felt reminiscent of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And I personally have wondered um, if and when we as a country will learn to treat people with love and respect and basic human dignity. As difficult as the first half of 2020 has been, I have no doubt that the second half of 2020 will also give opportunity for fear and frustration. I'm not saying that election years bring out the worst in people, but now, church, especially now, we must be people who live in light of God's gracious love towards us and love and care um, for people and, and treat them with the same sort of undeserved grace and kindness. Regardless of political or sexual or theological orientation, we have to remember that every single human pers uh, person is, is made in the image of God, that they are worthy of love and dignity and respect. It's what we are called to as lovers of God, to be lovers of people. We are to treat them not with derision, but with dignity, not with revulsion, but with respect. We are, we are incapable of solving all the world's problems, but we have the God-given ability to weep with those who weep, to speak for truth and justice, and to love one another well. We should be much more informed by the Bible than we are by cable news. We should bear a more uh, strong resemblance to Jesus than we do heads of state. And the beautiful narrative of the gospel story should be the, um, the narrative that shapes our thinking more than anything that we could stream online. How we think about the world and how we think about people in the world is always going to be informed most prominently and productively by the gospel of Christ. As we, uh, as we close, um, I wanna mention the fact that uh, next week we are planning on officially reopening the church for, for live and in-person worship on July 5th. We've had a team that has been meeting over the last few weeks, now months. Um, so special shout out to, to Dean and to Derek and to English and Janine and, and JD and Kristen and Michelle and Steve who have um, sat through countless meetings uh, giving consideration for how we open the church in a, in a safe and conscientious manner. We've consulted doctors and we've polled church members. And what we we're planning to do is that we we're planning to have in-person worship, um, both in the sanctuary and in the worship center at 9 and 1045 next week with the gym being available as an overflow room. And in order to reopen in a safe and conscientious manner that communicates a love for neighbor well, we are um, asking uh, that you limit seating to every other row um, that... Uh, you be mindful to socially distance yourself from people uh, before, during, and after the service. And additionally, we are requiring that those of you who are able to join us next week for worship to wear masks. 
And if you don't have one, um, if, you're, if you're unable to bring one with you or if you get one, we have some disposable ones here, but we are limited in supply. And again, we do all of these things in an effort to be safe and conscientious and to, to love our neighbor well. So if, um, if you, for some reason, are unable to wear a mask or you are immunocompromised or you don't feel comfortable coming back in person worship yet next week, we will still continue to promote our live stream option and we hope that you will continue to worship with us at home. Um, for more details on our reopening, uh, you can look at our website and you can keep an eye out for our weekly e-news. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be a people who live in light of um, your your love towards us. Help us as followers of Christ um, demonstrate that love towards other people, um, people that we that we love and care about because they're family, our friends, but also people that we don't know or who are unlike us, um, people that we casually interact with on a day-to-day basis, people at work, neighbors. Um, I pray, God, that as followers of you, we would demonstrate your love um, towards an unbelieving world. Um, Help us to be salt and light, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we pray this in, in your name. Amen.